Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, thanks for downloading Politics on the Couch the podcast where politics goes when it needs a lie down and a cup of tea and maybe a biscuit. Hosted by me, Raphael Baer. Now, the only complaint we've ever had about politics on the couch is that there isn't enough of it and it isn't regular enough. That's the kind of criticism we can take. And we've listened. We've upped the fibre in our recording diet and now we're going to be much more regular. Uh, Let's not dwell too long on that metaphor, actually. This week's topic is one that contains maybe more angst than any other issue in recent British political history. It's whatever the opposite of a gift that keeps on giving is, the trauma that keeps on taking. I'm talking about Brexit, of course. Specifically, regret. The idea, the hope in some cases, the dread in others, that Britain, having voted to leave the EU, has changed its mind. Now, already there's a lot that needs unpacking there. Britain did not corporately vote for anything. Lots of individuals voted leave, and a smaller, but still quite large number, voted remain. But we don't know exactly why or what they expected to happen as a result of their votes. It all means different things to different people. And that's where the problem started. There was no common concept of what Brexit meant in 2016. Then there was an almighty bust up to reach a definition. And a few years where negotiations in Brussels and domestic culture wars rampaged, often without much connection between them. Then Boris Johnson won that landslide victory on the promise to get Brexit done. Which was as much a pledge to just make the horrible noise stop as it was a commitment to resolve the technical challenge of disentangling the UK from the trade and political alliance that had, for 30, 40 years, defined its economic and diplomatic relations. Regular listeners to this podcast and readers of my Guardian column will know that I thought Brexit was a terrible idea. And also that I haven't seen evidence yet to make me think otherwise. Now, I'd love to think that since 2020, public opinion has been moving in my direction. Of course I would. Who doesn't want to think that they were right all along and that all the misguided, benighted people are seeing the light? But one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is to be wary of getting excited by arguments, articles, opinion polls, tweets, whatever it is, anything that supports exactly what I'd love to think. It's called motivated reasoning, the way our minds recruit evidence selectively to bolster some comfortable prejudice. We take the picture, squint at it, hold it up to the light at an angle so it shows us what we most want to see. And of course, we belittle and dismiss and look away from awkward facts that might complicate things. But that said, opinion polls show quite consistently, in fact, very consistently, that if the referendum were run again now, Remain would win. 
and perhaps comfortably. One big recent poll for the Unheard website put the statement, Britain was wrong to leave the EU to 10,000 people from across the UK. That's a big sample in polling terms. And they found that 54% agreed with that statement, while only 28% disagreed. The rest didn't know. And at the more passionate ends of the mood spectrum, 37% strongly agreed that Britain was wrong to leave the EU, and only 19% were sure that leaving had been a grand idea. Broken down, or rather projected down to constituency level, the people who were down on Brexit outnumbered the cheerleaders in 629 out of 632 seats. So in a first-past-the-post election where the only question was Brexit, in theory, Remain wins by an enormous landslide now. Lincolnshire, it turns out, is the hardcore bastion of leave of faith. Everywhere else, people aren't so sure, and getting less sure by the day, it seems. People can, of course, quibble about methodologies and suggest different ways of asking the question. Crucially, thinking Brexit was a mistake is definitely not the same as wanting to rejoin the EU, and certainly not the same as wanting to go through a political and cultural process anything like the one we went through after 2016. We don't necessarily want to be dragged through that same horrible bramble bush backwards. But if Brexit had been an obvious triumph, if any of the promises that had been made in its name were being fulfilled, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be applying my motivated reasoning to something else. And, well, the pro-Brexit politicians wouldn't sound so panicky, borderline hysterical about the Remainer plots to undo their revolution. The third anniversary of Brexit Day, the day we formally legally left the EU, that was at the end of January, well, it would have been marked with fireworks, hymns of liberation, maybe an unveiling of a monument to Nigel Farage as father of national emancipation. It's still notable how defensive leavers were around that anniversary, and how little Downing Street wanted to mark the occasion. Rishi Sunak did a Twitter thread, I think. That's hardly declaring a new bank holiday, is it? So where does this all leave us? Does Britain regret Brexit? Once again, it doesn't necessarily illuminate much to talk about Britain collectively feeling anything. Different British people are having very conflicted, possibly contradictory feelings all at the same time. Also, regret itself is a complex emotion. You can regret having done something, but also accept that it's done, and want to leave it in the past. Regret doesn't exclude acceptance and moving on. Regret also includes a notion of shame. And that's, that's one of the most powerful and painful internal states we know. And for that reason, it's one of the hardest to express in public. It's not often you see politicians, anyone coming out in public and saying, I'm ashamed of this thing that we did. I'm ashamed of this thing that my country did. Now, I sometimes think that Brexit is entering the British national psyche in a way that's quite different to an election result or a major policy decision. It's more in the style of a military defeat, something that almost everyone will come to recognise as a national disaster, but with a lot of division still over the causes, who is to blame, and whether there was ever a better outcome available. Leavers will still have an available narrative of betrayal and sabotage. It would have been fine, but it wasn't given enough time. Or Boris Johnson was stabbed in the back. Or the politicians and civil servants lacked the courage to do it properly. And Remainers will say it was misguided from the start. The wrong campaign, against the wrong enemy, a lemming crusade destined to end in calamity. Somewhere in that mix, you can have a large majority who wish it hadn't happened, but beneath that apparent consensus, lots of disagreement, suspicion, resentment, and not much clarity about what to do next. What politically should Britain do with the information that Brexit hasn't worked? For me, this is the psychological nub of the problem. It might be hard for leavers to make the cognitive adjustment to accepting that Brexit is a dud, 
But there are challenges for Remainers too. For a start, accepting quite how hard rejoining would be. Accepting that the EU itself has moved on. Accepting that the Labour Party and Keir Starmer have a calculation to make about their route to election victory. And that road doesn't necessarily go by way of making a big song and dance about the folly of Brexit. The voters Starmer has to persuade, well, some of them may be feeling a bit regretful, but that doesn't mean they want their noses rubbed in it. They might think Brexit went wrong, but not want to hear pro-European messages from an Islington lawyer who campaigned for a second referendum. And Starmer's also got his eyes on voters who really haven't changed their minds. It's not as simple as saying, well, that was a massive cock-up, wasn't it? Because, well, then what comes next? Which all brings me, at last, to this week's guest. Anand Menon is a professor of European politics and foreign affairs at King's College London and director of UK in a Changing Europe, a research partnership and hub for expertise in Brexit and all its various implications. Their work has reliably been an excellent source of data and analysis. They deal in facts. They don't flinch from telling people on both sides of the Brexit divide things they don't necessarily want to hear. And that's why I asked Anand to help me work through my regret questions. I knew he wouldn't indulge my misty-eyed Remainer tendency. Well, not too much, anyway. Now, we recorded this conversation a few weeks back, before the most recent polls and the glut of commentary around the Brexit Day anniversary. If anything, the mood has got even more regretful since we spoke. But the substance of the issue and the arguments haven't really changed. That's one thing you can be sure of with Brexit. The polls might move, the mood might shift, the Prime Minister might change. But as a chronic syndrome causing all kinds of nasty symptoms in Britain's politics and economy, well, it isn't going anywhere, is it? Which is why we need regular sessions of Brexit therapy on the couch. The couch to which I welcome Anand Menon. There is a regular lead in opinion polls for... Well, it depends how you ask the question, doesn't it? But one of the questions is, you know, if there were a referendum now or, or on Brexit asking the same question, Remain would win somewhere in the order, I think, of sort of eight to ten points. Uh, so, um, and, and first of all, let's just, I mean, let's try to keep this as simple as possible to begin with. What is that actually, what does that actually mean? What is that question, that answer actually telling us? It's partly telling us that people think this government is no good, I think. It's partly telling us that people are focused on the economics. And I think in some cases, probably blaming Brexit for things that have got nothing to do with Brexit. But in this economic climate, one of the things we've seen is an increase in the number of even Leave supporters who think Brexit has been bad for the economy. And one of the big open questions is, as we emerge from this economic crisis, will people sort of default back to where they were before on Brexit because they're no longer worried about feeding their kids, putting the heating on and things like that. But I think there's no doubt that also this is there is a sense that Brexit as it was sold isn't delivering as it should have done and isn't providing us with the riches and with the benefits that were promised. So there is some changing of mind, but the degree to which it's tied up with perceptions of the government or perceptions of the contemporary economy is very, very hard to untangle. And how much of that then is also about the sort of Boris charisma bubble exploding a little bit? You know, the, the idea that somehow he was the incarnation of a whole wider cultural proposition about optimism and ebullience and, and the sort of cod Churchillian rhetoric uh, that certainly seems to appeal to a segment of people who voted Leave and who then voted Conservative in 2019. And that now seems to be over. Is, 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 there a, is there a sort of a character element to it as well, do you think? 
Partly, though, one of the interesting things about that is both the big parties have now got leaders who sell themselves more or less explicitly as the anti-Boris. They're the boring, technocratic, I can get things done, and everything is about competence now. So whether actually there is a sense that people saw through Johnson by the end, and certainly, you know, despite what you see amongst Johnson supporters on Twitter, we should remind ourselves he was spectacularly unpopular when he left office, that maybe part of that unpopularity was a sense that actually there was very little in the way of delivery on the sort of ebullient pledges. I think that's absolutely true that both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are competing for this more managerial, technocratic, you know, centrist, for want of a better word, space. Um, yeah, Rishi Sunak voted to leave in 2016 and and quite enthusiastically and slightly going against the grain of his what might have been his political self-interest at the time. I mean, he was an acolyte of George Osborne. He was under pressure as a sort of rising star of the Conservative Party to be a Remainer. And so it was actually a sort of a principal decision. And he, and he made a great deal of that in the 2022 summer leadership contest. And yet amazingly, uh, it was Liz Truss who had voted Remain who sort of captured the Brexit mantle in that contest. And Rishi Sunak ended up in being a sort of a cultural Remainer in that in the eyes of the Conservative Party. What does, how does that connect with this wider sense of, of, of Brexit, of Remain and Leave as badges of belonging and cultural identity? I think it speaks to the fact that identity in politics really matters. And the Sunak trust thing was, for me, it was about who you are rather than what you say. Uh, Sunak could have said anything he liked. And the fact remains that for many Tories, he was the Davos, Goldman Sachs, Prada-wearing kind of person that the referendum was meant to kick out of power. Like you and me and Anne, basically, Prada-wearing... Sorry, Henry. I wish. I don't own any Prada items. So just for the record, let's point out, neither Anna nor I are wearing anything Prada at the moment. Carry on, sorry. Neither neither Raph nor I are wearing anything, indeed. But uh, <laughs> That's why it's a podcast on a television programme. And that's also not true. Fake news, Anna, fake news. Carry on. Uh, you know, I think people looked at Rishi Sunak and he's not what Brexit was meant to bring us in the way of leaders. He's like, he looked too much like the sort of Cameron Osborne set. The other thing I'd say about Rishi Sunak is... Yes, he, he he supported leave in 2016, but it's bloody hard to find out why. I mean, we've done this trawl on the internet as, you know, speeches Sunak gave during the referendum campaign or events he went to to speak in favour of remain uh, of leave. We've not managed to find them. So actually, he's a leaver who has been a leaver since before the referendum. But it's very, very hard to find out precisely why he voted leave. I mean, I can shed a bit of light on this because I think the only one-on-one lunch I have ever had with Rishi Sunak was uh, when he was uh, a new, fresh-faced Conservative MP and was experiencing... This This might be bre- breaching confidence, actually, but he's a Prime Minister and I'm not going to say anything that isn't now on the record. But anyway, he uh, was then really wrestling in his mind what he would do uh, in the refer- in the referendum and he hadn't officially come out as a lever yet but that was clearly the way he was he was tilting and we had a conversation uh, about Europe and the EU and it was clear to me that he and this is going to sound sort of either patronizing or or arrogant but then I'm a remainer so that's I think people probably assume that of me anyway I got the very strong impression that he didn't really understand what the EU did or was or how the single market really worked 
other than the set of information that you need to get through a candidate selection for a safe seat like Richmond in Yorkshire. Uh, and and he sort of acquired an apparatus of understanding the EU issue through that prism. And when I sort of put that analysis to people who subsequently worked with him in the Treasury and said, this was always my impression of, of Rishi Sunak's sort mm. of slightly parochial view of the EU. It was basically a sort of Tory, Eurosceptic, ambitious framing uh, people said to me, yes, that's very much the case. And also that's why actually he sort of changed his mind in the Treasury, not to the extent that he'll come out and say that was a terrible mistake. Uh, we should never have done it. But I'm given to understand that he's not certainly not very far away from having been on that journey, as a lot of people, as Philip Hammond, in fact, did as well. He was very Eurosceptic before. Though I would say, you know, he's clung to his belief in Freeport, despite what I imagine would have been Treasury officials saying to him, Chancellor, you know, the, all the evidence suggests that this creates no economic activity. It, at best, it shifts economic activity from one place to another, but he's clung on to his faith. In a, so at a certain point, there is, a, there is an element of economic dishonesty comes in. It might be that you don't completely understand. I mean, who did understand the single market before we'd sort of talked about it for four years? But at a certain point, particularly if you've worked in the Treasury, you would have been exposed to the people who did the forecast that said, this is what Brexit means, and this is what free ports mean, and these are how the effects play through. Uh, and at that point, you are being deliberately dishonest. So let's go back then to that, that, that the number of people who are now saying that they would vote to stay in the EU. Uh, if there is a sort of a tension between your identity as a leaver, someone who, who was a Brexiter, uh, or your just a rational evaluation of the current situation where we are, and you think on balance, maybe that was a mistake. Can we say anything? Can we pause anything about who the people are who are now in the column of saying they would vote Remain? who had been in 2016 leavers? Do we know who they are? Or is it just, is it sort of demographic drag? Is it just that leavers died and Remainers have come of voting age? There are relatively few leavers who seem to have changed their minds, though it is happening, though I confess I'm not sure which of the leavers they are, though I'll come back to talk a little bit about the different sorts of leavers there were, and we can speculate. Most of the change has been through demographic change. We've got a blog on our website by Simon Hicks and a couple of others who talk about demographic change. And basically, you know, without being too crass about it, it is younger Remainers coming into the electorate that are shifting these numbers. Uh, so it's less about people changing their minds, more about demographic change. But if you think about the sorts of levers there were, and we, we've done focus groups quite often in the period since the referendum, and uh, sort of broadly speaking, several types of levers. There are the levers who I mean, we dub them the comfortable leavers, the ones who are relatively well off, the ones we don't talk about, actually, because we focus so much on left behind leavers, where actually the bulk of the leavers were comfortable Tory voting leavers, who were many of whom were, were happy to say, we're happy to take an economic hit. You know, we can afford it. We've got a bit of a cushion. And if there's a bit of an economic hit, we're happy to take it. So there was that sort of lever. There were the leavers who simply thought, all your stuff about growth doesn't apply to me. You've been telling me the economy's been growing for 10 years and my life's got worse. So actually, I just don't believe anything you say. There were others who simply didn't believe the numbers. You know, George Osborne is a liar. Uh, and I suspect that lattermost group, if their lives are getting harder now, might be amongst those who are saying, well, hang on a sec, this isn't what we were promised. I mean, the other thing I would say, which I think is crucial, and the one lesson that I think political scientists have learned from the last 10 years, we used to think campaigns don't matter. All right. And then we had the Scottish referendum where you saw that enormous shift 
towards yes from where the campaign started two years before the vote. Then we had the 2017 uh, election where obviously things swung massively. And of course, we had the 2016 referendum. And I don't think the campaign in 2016 changed lots of minds, but I think the campaign of 2016 had a massive impact on who actually turned out to vote. You know, I think that the estimate is something like 2.8 million people who didn't vote in the 2015 general election voted in the 2016 referendum. So whatever the polls say now, we need to factor in the fact that if we had a campaign, that campaign would have an impact on the outcome. The other thing, I mean, I agree about campaigns. It's very interesting when you look at the leads that and sort of a notional remain proposition has now. And we have to remember that that's it's a sort of meaningless question because actually no one's really engaging with what it would practically mean to try and rejoin the EU. So it's a very, we're in a deep in the realms of hypo- hypothesis here. But that lead, it's not that different to the one that a sort of a in the EU versus out had in around 2015. But also going back, I was quite surprised. I looked at polling from sort of 2010, 11, 12 and leaving the EU had quite strong leads at times. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't quite, I was trying to remember what was going on at the time, the, what, what, what the correlation there might have been, but it's it's been all over the place, the polling on this. So it's certainly, I think, true to say that if for some reason you were to relitigate the referendum, what we are seeing in the polls now isn't a great indicator of, of what would happen. And just I'll let you back in again in a second, but because I think the other thing that's very, very important is the, the period between 2016 and 2019 after the referendum, where uh, being a Brexiter and a Lever became a proposition, an identity proposition about the fulfilment of a democratic mandate, which was nothing to do really with whether or not it was a good idea to leave the EU anymore. It's about doing what we said the first time. Indeed. And I think, you know, were we to have another referendum, the first thing I would do if I was in charge of the Leave side is cast out on the legitimacy of the process. And one way you would do it is say, well, look, we've told the Scots it's too bloody soon. How come we're doing this again? Uh, so I think, you know, the legitimacy of the process is, has become quite key to a, a lot of this. I mean, it is, it is, as you say, massively hypothetical. It's it's quite hard for me to see how we get from where we are now to another referendum, quite honestly, simply because it's quite hard for me to see the Labour Party wanting to take on that kind of task in the foreseeable future. Okay, so you mentioned Labour, and it is quite interesting because it seems to me that Keir Starmer has made an electoral decision probably based around you know, considerations of you know, the well, we could talk about what, how much that's part of the sort of first past the post electoral system as well, but based on the kind of constituencies he needs to win and the kind of voters he needs to win, that although it will upset a Remain base in the sort of metropolitan liberal bit of the Labour family, any cost he might incur by upsetting them is definitely less than the gain he might get by neutralising the idea that he's basically uh, an Islington metropolitan lawyer remainer who's desperate to overturn Brexit and throw the doors wide open to unchecked immigration all over again. So he's he's just made that calculation. Uh, and that might electorally be absolutely the right calculation, but it's also possibly inauthentic for what he actually believes, which is a different problem. Is that a fair analysis, you think, of his situation? Well, I've no idea what Keir Starmer believes, but it does strike me. I mean, you know, he's getting stick for being 24 points ahead in the polls, it seems to me, which is bizarre. I mean, if I were the leader of a party that was 24 points ahead in the polls, I wouldn't change direction dramatically. I'd keep going. I mean, something seems to be working. You know, there is a genuine issue here in electoral terms, given the nature of our constituencies. There's very little benefit 
for Labour in piling up seats in London constituencies that you're going to win anywhere. It's the marginals where there happen to be a significant number of Leave voters that matter. And, you know, I think what Starmer's doing is perfectly sensible. I think it's perfectly sensible in electoral terms because he's ahead in the polls and he wants to avoid the predictable Tory attacks if he starts to soften his position. I think it's sensible because actually... If I were Keir Starmer, what I wouldn't want to do in my first term as prime minister is spend it in negotiations with the European Union and negotiations with my own party about either, I mean, not even rejoin, but actually going very far beyond the trade and cooperation agreement. I think any progress beyond where we are now is going to be deeply difficult. It's going to be deeply difficult in a technical sense and deeply difficult because if you are viewing us from the EU having a conversation about rejoin, your reaction, I imagine, will be, yeah, right, because you're going to change your mind at the next bloody election and it'll be a pain. So, Yeah, I mean, that's where the, the levels of counterfactual and hypothesis make it a, a very, actually a very difficult phenomenon to to analyse, I find, because, you know, I've, I've written columns more or less saying what you've just said about Keir Starmer's position, uh, I've perhaps been a little bit less generous, um, but it's saying that I can completely understand. I mean, if I write, I entirely understand why he is making this choice. And particularly, I think, with regard to the question of, of rejoining the single market, which means free movement, which basically reopens a Labour vulnerability on, on immigration. I can describe that as a sensible political calculation. And a lot of people who read my column and who really hated Brexit are sort of upset by that or, or disappointed by me pointing that out because what they really want is, to, I think, to hear someone say, no, the mood has changed. Don't you see you could get ahead of this? Something, something different has happened. And two things strike me about that. One, you know, obviously I would also like that to be true. So I have to sort of work against my own sort of cognitive biases mm. here. Um, uh, and the other one is a lot of, I think, that opinion in almost any other political discussion these are people i don't want to put words in their mouth but people who would sort of see themselves as reasonable moderate centrist evidence-led and if, if it was a question of a sort of like when it was jeremy corbyn policy for labor they would say well you've just got to compromise with the electorate don't be ridiculous don't sort of martyr yourself on some abstract principle if it means because if it's going to cost you the election and yet that same logic stops applying for the radical remainers who, who just want it to be true that you could win by saying we join a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But let me just say two things. Opinion might have changed, but Brexit isn't salient. And I think that's key. 
Okay. I mean, you know, you think back to 2019, where what, 60, or I think almost 70% of those people asked by Ipsos put Brexit as the top issue. I think that figure is now hovering around 10%. So this, you know, people might think, oops, we made a mistake, but they don't, they don't wake up in the morning thinking we've got to fix Brexit. They wake up in the morning thinking cost of living, inflation, fuel prices. So it's not the most pressing issue uh, they're facing. The second thing about single market is it's not just freedom of movement that's at stake here. There is a democratic debate to be had about whether being in the single market without having any say at all over those regulations is problematic. And I think for many people it is problematic. I remember uh, the Bank of England, when we were still talking in terms of financial services equivalent, being very stark and saying, actually, you know what, we should be really careful about putting ourselves under EU regulations over which we have no say. Who wants the French regulating our financial services industry? France is the answer to that question. <laughs> President Macron, yeah. Oh, but, but there are issues there. There are, there, are, there are principled issues around democracy and there are practical issues around whether or not you want to be inside a regulatory system over whose regulations you have no say and certainly no vote. This gets absolutely to the heart of it, I think, because this was, this was why I always felt in that 2016 to 19 period it was just the, the polarisation and the gravitation towards a very hard Brexit felt almost inevitable quite early on. Because once you conceded the sort of the logic of a soft Brexit, which is, well, we've got to do it because people voted for it, but actually we don't want to do it because the consequences are quite nasty, you get into exactly the sort of horrible vassal state type scenario. And this is why you know, talk about Swiss models becomes problematic. You know, the Norwegians don't like it. The Swiss don't like it. Britain wouldn't take it anyway. We're a nuclear power on the UN Security Council. That's that's not the kind of country Britain sort of sees itself as being. Uh, and it was problematic in all sorts of ways. And so the logic of a soft Brexit is no Brexit. And the logic of doing the referendum therefore becomes hard Brexit. And that's where we ended up. That doesn't leave the sort of regretters or, or people who think, no, on balance, this hasn't worked. This isn't a good idea with very many places to go in policy terms. No, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the problem, isn't it? Is It's not a sort of sliding scale of preference that, you know, if you don't like Brexit, you'd rather be in the single market than not in the single market, because actually you might be someone who desperately regrets Brexit, but thinks being in the single market without being a member is massively problematic. So you'd rather be outside the single market. So you'd rather... There's, sorry, 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 because there's a, there's a little niche of regret here, which is the, what I'd call the sort of the, the David Gork <laughs> version, which is the sort of position which is should have done Theresa May's deal. Like that actually, in fairness to her, and I, 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 could, I can make this argument, I'm not sure I necessarily believe it, but I can definitely make it. For all the reasons that you just say, actually, that it, you know, she did pretty well to get a, a sort of horrible halfway house deal that covered some of this off. And that actually, that, that's, where, that's where progressors might reasonably have sort of have some space. Let me say, I mean, let me say a couple of things about that. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, as someone whose, you know, career for 20 years consisted of teaching about the European Union, I was absolutely staggered that they offered that. Absolutely staggered. I mean, whatever you may or may not think about Theresa May, the fact that that deal was negotiated was an utter triumph of diplomacy because I did not think there was any way at all that the European Union would offer us that. You might not like it, but actually still, it, it went far beyond the kind of consent. You know, there are member states who don't like the current Northern Ireland protocol because they think it concedes too much to Northern Ireland. And in practice, they conceded that to the whole of the United Kingdom under the backstop. So getting that from the European Union was a tremendous feat. And yes, you know, Theresa May's deal was an attempt to square the circle, to give the impression of 
leaving single market customs union, while in reality hanging on to those bits of them that crucially would prevent the Northern Ireland border, but also would to an extent lessen the damage to our economy. Now, we don't want to go over the top about this. This was still a deal that would have had significant economic consequences, though they wouldn't have been as significant as the ones that Boris Johnson's deal has inflicted on us. Second thing I want to say quickly, just about when you were talking about the Brexit debates in Parliament, is I don't think we, we, can, we can forget agency here and the fact that the two extremes, the second referendum crowd and the hard Brexit crowd, from the outset pursued a scorched earth policy. The second referendum crown spent as much of their time trashing the soft Brexit lot as they did attacking the pro-Brexit lot. Uh, And both sides engaged in this. And we saw this when it came to the indicative votes. This is like no compromise. My, My way or the highway. We either have a second referendum or sod you all. We either have a hard Brexit or sod you all. And actually, the way those two extremes polarized that debate was quite effective but was also one, it wasn't just philosophical reasons that led to a rejection of soft Brexit, it was political campaigning as well. And also divisions inside the Labour Party. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, the, the, the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party was such a dysfunctional place. I mean, you don't have to take a position on whether or not they should have been more or against Jeremy Corbyn's leadership to recognise that there was no way the Labour Party was going to organise around any proposition. And I agree, I think those indicative votes, that was a key turning point. But sort of on behalf of very passionate Remainers who, some of whom listen to this podcast, I I have to sort of push back a little bit against both sides-ism uh, in that formulation, just because, and this is why, why I think regret as a phenomenon is so interesting, because you know, if it is true, or to, to the extent you can say any sort of political proposition is sort of has the, the more solid objective basis in fact, if it's true that Brexit was a bad idea for Britons, for its well-being, then there isn't total parity there, is there? The, the basic, and, you know, and in the same way in the campaign, yes, maybe Remain, some of the leaflets sort of were a little bit cheeky in terms of what they suggested might happen, or some of the doomier forecasts didn't happen. It's, but they didn't lie quite like Boris Johnson lies. I mean, Boris Johnson lies for breakfast, you know. So, the, the, but that, do you see what I mean? So there's a sense that, you know, yes, the polarisation, it takes two to polarise. Um, but but if the situation that we've ended up in is one where the more mendacious side won, where, where, do, where do we go next then? I wasn't arguing equivalence of argument. I was arguing equivalence of tactics. What I was saying was that both sides set about to deal with the moderates on their side So the pro-Brexit moderates and the anti-Brexit moderates were the targets of the second referendum lot and the hard Brexit lot on their own side. And I think there was an equivalence there uh, that neither side was willing to compromise at all. And ultimately, if you judge political campaigns by their results, and if you assume that for many on the Remain side, a soft Brexit was better than where we are now, even though it wasn't as good as membership, then there was a failure on that side of the debate. And part of that failure, I think, was to fail to appreciate early enough that there wasn't going to be a parliamentary majority for that second referendum. I mean, going back to what you said about Labour, I think there's some really interesting questions there. I mean, I remember talking to Labour MPs in the sort of March, April of 2019, and one of the fears in their mind was the sort of deselection fear. That is, you know, we can't back a Tory Brexit. And I remember we, we have this thing on our website called the Brexit Web Archive, where we interview people who were involved in the Brexit process. And there's some wonderful, wonderful, I mean, Philip Hammond one is absolutely priceless because, I mean, one of the things he talks about is 
the 2016 Tory conference, and he says, I had to sit there with a rictus smile while Theresa May carried out a coup against her cabinet. It's one of my favourite quotes. But uh, David Liddington's interesting because, of course, he was involved in the negotiations with the Labour Party around the spring of 2019. And from my memory, what he basically says is we came to the realisation that we could offer them everything they wanted. We even offered them what their position on Brexit was, and they said no. Yes, I remember that. Well, also, but the other side of that is, or the other feature of that rather, which I think supports what you're saying, is that ultimately so much of politics was toxic at that time. And Jeremy Corbyn was such a problem, obviously not just for moderate Labour, but for the Tories, that you know, someone like Anna Soubry, I'm pretty sure, would, would not feel comfortable walking through the same lobby as Jeremy Corbyn, even though you wouldn't find a more sort of ardent, diehard Remainer in that parliament. So it was just so difficult. I'll just say one thing, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we spend so much time talking about how the Brexit division has trumped the, the, the traditional party divisions. In that crucial spring of 2019, it was all about Labour versus Tory. Ultimately, that's what triumphed over everything else. And for reasons you quite rightly point out, dislike of Corbyn, Labour Labour MPs fearing voting for a Tory Brexit and what that would mean both for their own uh, standing in their constituency parties and for their broader reputation. It, it, It came back to red versus blue. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something I think I've said before, even on this podcast, that one of the things I called wrong about that period, it felt to me that the, you know, the the, the party system was just being broken apart by this new uh, polarised argument about leave remain as badges of identity. And actually, the resilience of the two party system in England, it turns out to have been one of the, the extraordinary features of that. Picking up on that point about, you know, the Theresa May and the coup against a sort of sensible Brexit in that very early on, September 2016, Mm. uh, the citizens of nowhere. And I think, as you were saying earlier, that's really what did for Rishi Sunak, wasn't it, in in 2022, that no no amount of having been a lever could sort of scrub the cultural taint of he was a bit citizen-y of nowhere versus what Liz Truss was offering. So what extent... You know, now we are in the sort of dealing with the practical consequences of Brexit and the argument that the referendum was won by one side, therefore you have to do it, uh, is sort of, it feels quite irreversible as a consensus on that point in England. Where does that leave a kind of a conservative identity then if, if you're sort of in the next sort of few months and the, the year that we've got coming up. That's I don't really understand how they, because you talk about sort of free ports or uh, you know, repealing all the laws or not. It seems to me it's almost a bigger problem for the Tories. Well, it's obviously it's a bigger problem for the Tories. They're in government. I'll stop talking now. You've understood the question. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, the Tories obviously aren't dealing with the consequences of Brexit because they're refusing to accept the consequences of Brexit. I mean, you know, this is one of the things that drives me absolutely mad is you're in favour of Brexit, absolutely fine. If you think this was about reclaiming sovereignty, absolutely fine. But be honest about the economics, because then we can address the economic issues that come out of it. You can't address problems unless you acknowledge that those problems exist. And there is still that complete and utter refusal on the part of Rishi Sunak and the government, as much as of his backbenchers, to say, OK, let's go through some of these implications. It's been hinted at by Jeremy Hunt in cryptic terms. But actually sitting down and saying, OK, these are some of the issues. These are the things we can do to help address them. That's not happening. So we're not dealing with the consequences of Brexit. We're living with the consequences of Brexit, which is slightly different. And it is a problem for the Conservatives. If you think about what Boris Johnson did, and actually, let me just say, what, what Theresa May started doing, because Theresa May 
And I think, you know, to be fair to Nick Timothy, he was the one, essentially, who initiated the strategy that Boris Johnson brought to successful fruition in 2019. And, you know, and you saw in the Red Wall seats that there was a nudge towards the Tories uh, in 2017 for a variety of reasons, not least how rubbish Theresa May was. It didn't work. But it was essentially the same strategy in 2019. And that was a strategy of building a Leave coalition, put it in its simplest terms. That You know, 75% of Leave voters voted for Boris Johnson in December 2019. But that was a coalition that was cultural, not economic. It was a coalition of people who could agree on Brexit, who could agree on small boats, who could agree on footballers taking the knee, who could agree on, you know, whether statues should be pulled down or not. Yeah, it was a culture war sort of outline. But not a coalition that could agree on the basis of basics of economic policy. You talk to the Northern Research Group and their view of how the economy should be run is very different to John Redwood's. And of course, the problem the Conservatives have now is twofold. One, Boris Johnson was the ultimate obfuscator. I mean, one of the political skills of Boris Johnson was the ability to be all things to all men and to be able to go to Surrey and give a speech and saying, I'm a tax cutting conservative and go to Wakefield the next day and say, we're going to invest in transport and infrastructure and level up the country. Both audiences believed it, which is a rare skill as a politician. So you've lost that man who had that unique ability to be ambiguous. And you've run into the teeth of the worst economic crisis for decades which is about as bad as it can get if you've co- created a cultural coalition which is divided on economics. So this this was all foreseeable. It would have happened ultimately under Boris Johnson. Right. I'm very glad you raised that, the voter coalition, because this is, again, something that I've had to recalibrate my view on. I, I, I was talking, I'm sure you've spoken to the same people uh, who would defend, again, that the sort of the Nick Timothy view of what was politically available and the fact that Boris Johnson's big landslide was sort of standing on the shoulders of electoral gains in certain constituencies, actually, that Theresa May made. But unfortunately, she threw away a load of Tory votes elsewhere. Yeah. So she didn't get any credit for it. Now, one view of that shift that I certainly took or was open to taking was that it was a kind of a political cultural realignment and you could compare it to, well, two things. One, you could compare it, if you're being very grand, to the the shift from... Uh, Southern Democrats in the US to the Republicans, you know, on a cultural mm-hmm. issue in the 60s, the Democrats were, mm-hmm. the South was Democrat, but then because of Johnson and civil rights, they all eventually, I mean, that's crude, you, you know the argument. Yep, um, yep, yep. Uh, and that's working class people just basically becoming more right wing because the party of organized labor basically lets them down on a cultural issue, crudely speaking. Mm-hmm. The other thing you could compare it to is you know, maybe a, a bit more available uh, as a comparison is Scotland. Uh, and a load of people who just, you'd weighed the Labour vote, you know, you could stand a yep. donkey with a red rosette and in those seats is always yep. Labour, it's Labour, it's Labour, Labour. And then actually Labour, they feel neglected by Labour, ignored, Labour doesn't speak their language, doesn't speak with their accent, all their best leaders go off to the South and, and in England and become Gordon Brown and Douglas Alexander and neglect their, yep. their sort of hinterland. Uh, and then they realise they can vote SNP and then Labour are absolutely wiped out. And the sense was that the Red Wall was culturally a bit like that. And that was not as so much about Boris Johnson as about deeper things. And now you think, oh, actually, maybe it was just about Brexit and Boris Johnson. And actually, those things are just going to go Labour again. So which is it? I don't think it's true that it was just about Boris Johnson. I think if you talk to a real expert, you know, get James Kanagasurian on this podcast sometime because, I mean, he really knows his stuff. And what his argument is, we call it the Red Wall, not because, you know, the Tories nicked it from Labour, because ultimately, demographically, we'd expect those seats 
many of them to be Tory. It's just for reasons of history or tradition or culture or whatever, they've stuck with Labour. But the curious thing is that they've stuck with Labour, not that they went Tory. Now, what I mean, you know, just talking about where I came from, sort of West Yorkshire, it's, it was very interesting because from the referendum onwards, West Yorkshire started to feel a little bit like Scotland. You had exactly the same phenomena. You had your Yvette Coopers, your Ed Millibands, your Ed Balls, you know, you know, the Blair and Brownite set parachuted in from London to stand in these safe Labour seats. You had an increasing sense of frustration building with the fact that Labour hadn't delivered uh, for any of those areas. And you really felt it during the 2019 campaign, uh, where I think it was, it, I think it is true that for both Yvette's and Ed's seat, that the Brexit party's vote was bigger than their majority. You know, they survived courtesy of Nigel Farage. And you could see that happening. And it did, it did, it did all feel a bit eerily reminiscent of Scotland. And when you speak to voters in that part of the world, they sound a bit like the Scots, uh, obviously not the accent, but, uh, you know, they're saying, what have Labour ever done for us? They've been in power forever. And yet, look around you. Uh, and they treat us with contempt. They're all down there in London doing their podcasts and sort of being on Parliament TV. They're never here, you know, whatever. It's Yeah, people doing podcasts. That's, that's basically the, the root of what, everything that's basically gone wrong <laughs> with, with British politics. No, no, it's, it's absolutely right. I, mean, I can't think of any former Labour leader who was parachuted into a West Yorkshire seat who runs a, 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 Sorry, a, a podcast. Um, anyway, but no, I, it's interesting. But then, but then the follow-up question is, you know, what you've just described, uh, you know, that would suggest deep roots and you know, hard to reverse and also that would support the sort of certainly the Keir Starmer view that trying to tap into any kind of feeling of regret is an absolute fool's errand for the Labour Party right now. They just they just can't touch that. Is that would that be your analysis? That? I saw an interesting, I think it was more in common. There's so much polling going on at the moment. I think it was polling done by more in common that did show that Tory Labour switchers and those who are considering leaving the Tories after 2019, a significant proportion of whom said they would be less likely to vote Labour if Labour started to question Brexit. So I think, you know, this isn't just made up. This isn't just cowardice. I think, you know, in a situation where every vote counts uh, and where those seats are key, you can see why Keir Starmer is, saying what, is doing what he's doing. I mean, at the same time, there are, there are seats where by sounding a little bit softer on the European Union, he's hoping to attract those Remain voters. It's a hard balancing act. But as I say, it's a balancing act that is working if you're 20 odd points ahead in the polls, which he is. And, and Labour people say to me, it's not a balancing act, really, because although they will never say it aloud, um, you know, no one, you know, show me the voter who is so angry with Keir Starmer for not being supportive enough of the single market that they go off and vote Tory. That person doesn't exist. Whereas you can quite easily find voters you know, on the other side, as, you, as you've just described. And also, you know, one of the things that we forget too often about 1997 was one of the reasons why the Tories got so thrashed was because the Lib Dems did well. And if the Lib Dems are taking seats rather than Labour in the South, actually, it doesn't matter that much. If Labour are going, to be, are going to get a majority anyway, then the more seats the Tories lose, the better. So the two counter arguments that I've had put to me, are one, it is strategically inept for Labour to be as hard on this as they are. All they need to do is get the salience of the EU down, whereas actually for the sake of actually governing Britain well, you will want quite early to start moving towards a closer alignment with the EU and a better diplomatic relationship. And the other one is that there is an authenticity tax on Keir Starmer. If everyone knows 
or thinks they know that he's basically a bit Romani in that cultural sense. You know, it, it, advertising, you know, he might be better off just being authentically something that people disagree with than inauthentically something that he's just saying because he thinks that's what people want him to say. I mean, in a sense, cynically, so many, such a high proportion of the population thinks politicians just say whatever it takes for them to win. They don't really believe it. That actually, have, I think that's pretty much priced in. I mean, I, I, you know, we shouldn't be laughing about it because it is serious and it is the sort of thing that allows populism to flourish. Uh, but but when you say closer alignment, this is where it gets interesting. What do you mean? I mean, when when those people say, well, it's obvious we need closer alignment. The fact of the matter is the majority of the economic damage done by... Sorry, and are you inviting me to start talking about SPS agreements and agriculture? <laughs> well, no, but the point, but the point I'm going to make is the stuff that Keir Starmer has outlined, so SPS agreement, veterinary agreement... Sorry, SPS, is that sanitary and phytosanitary for, uh, for listeners who... Yeah. Absolutely, that would help, and it would certainly help with the Northern Ireland border, which clearly is a big issue at the moment. Okay, so it would it would help reduce the friction at that border, but don't let's not kid ourselves. It would have very little in the way of macroeconomic impact. The key macroeconomic gains to be had in a closer relationship with the European Union are from being in the single market. So you're either in the single market, in which case you you can you can hope for real macroeconomic gains, or you're not, in which case you're you're essentially fiddling around the edges in in terms of the national economy. The second thing I would say is lots of the things that Keir Starmer laid out in that speech to the Centre for European Reform, I think it was it last summer, I've lost all sense of time since COVID. Yeah, thereabouts. Some of it, I've sort of thought to myself, the EU aren't necessarily going to give us that. I mean, one of the things we forget too often in this country is the trade and cooperation agreement suited the EU quite nicely, because they got essentially frictionless trade in goods where they have a significant trade surplus with us. And there's virtually nothing about services where we have a significant trade surplus with them. The EU aren't automatically going to say yes to anything that makes our life easier. And they will ask for you know something in return if they're going to do that. So I, I, I suspect that should Keir Starmer become prime minister and should he sit in a room in Brussels and say, right then, lads, let's set about making trade easier between the two sides, he might not find his audience as receptive as I think many people seem to assume. Although... Uh, as you said before, Theresa May got actually a lot more than people who said, grow up, there's a 27 block you know, nation group and you're just one and you, you in these negotiations, you always lose. Now, the argument from the levers was always, and I'm aware that we're drifting away from the psychology of regret here and I can I can feel producer Phil getting <laughs> agitated that we're not being psychological. So we'll, we'll come on to that. But you've, you've coaxed me down the route of, you know, what if in terms of the future relationship. So let's just, digress there for a moment with the leavers always said look yes but the whole point is britain's an exception it's a big country obviously it wasn't true they need us more than we need them but they do need us a bit and the the war in ukraine demonstrates that there's a big macro strategic argument about uk capability and that was always the argument that uk security capabilities are very important and actually although you know theresa may played that card a bit too bluntly and crassly it it is true uh, that in theory, in a climate where the diplomacy is better and the relationships are better, the UK could, in theory, come up with an arrangement that is better than the one that Norway and Switzerland have as a sort of an associate agreement, because we're just a bigger, more powerful country. And that sounds a bit like cherry picking and having your cake and eating it from a, a sort of a post-Remain soft Brexit point of view. But is it completely unrealistic if you're thinking about a five, 10 year time horizon? 
at the moment, possibly, yeah, because I don't think the EU thinks that way. I was talking a few weeks ago to quite a senior EU official who said, you know, there were two approaches to the Brexit negotiation. One was, we're going to grind the buggers into the dirt and make it absolutely clear that people who leave are going to have a really hard time and this will put off other countries trying to do the same thing. And if you look at the latest polling from across the EU, that worked. Okay. And this official said that was essentially Barnier and his team. This was, you're leaving, you're going to suffer the consequences. If the EU had approached the talks with, okay, we're sad you're leaving and we're not going to give in on any of our core principles, but you are a major trading and particularly security partner and we need a functioning relationship for both our sakes. So why don't we think clearly and strategically about how that bilateral relationship can work best to both for both of us? There might well have been a different, I think back to that sort of Salzburg summit and the sort of Mickey taking on Instagram about cakes and whatever. And I just think, God, that was just a cock up by the European Union. I mean, ultimately, you know, it was in their interest to get a relationship where both sides came away happy. I suppose what's easy to forget, though, from that time is is the extent to which Brexit had become associated with the Trump presidency. But yeah, the the sort of terrible electoral twins of 2016, uh, and the sense that you know the visceral feeling that Brexit was conceived as a as a threat to the EU in a, in a, probably the way stronger than it was. But you always remember also that so Michael Gove made speeches more or less saying you know if this lights the blue touch paper and leads to the unraveling of the EU and liberates all the other captive nations of Europe, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. So it wasn't unreasonable for a lot of continental Europeans to think. To take the sort of the punishment narrative that you described, you can see how they got to that place. I can see how in June 2016, there were those in the EU thinking, crap, what if the French and the Italians try this? Yeah, I think by 2018, it was utterly clear because by then, you know, the the Front National, as they then were, had changed their position, having watched Brexit, that, you know, the populists in continental Europe had moved away from questioning the euro, let alone membership. By 2018, it was pretty damn clear that that wasn't happening. I'm not defending some of the rhetoric from Brexiters here, which was ridiculous. All I'm saying is that, you know, by the spring and summer of 2018, A, there was a deal on the table that you would have thought the EU would have wanted Theresa May to sell successfully, and undermining her wasn't the best way of doing that. And B, it was utterly clear to anyone who chose to think about it, that if Theresa May failed, she wasn't going to be replaced by Dominic Grieve as Prime Minister. She was going to be replaced by someone on the harder Brexit side. And so actually, your choice was this or something far more distant. And that that was utterly clear in 2018. Just by looking at the Conservative Party, it was utterly clear in 2018. Well, it's easy to get bogged down in, in you know how you might have navigated out of whether Chequers was dead in the water, all these sorts of questions. I mean, Going back to the sort of the cultural proposition that Brexit represented in this country, because obviously we, they, they, I've always said that Brexit, the problem, one of the problems is you're just using two words to this, the same word to describe two completely different things. You know, there's Brexit as in how do you technically disentangle the UK from 30 years of EU membership? And then there's Brexit. How do you satisfy whatever it was that the Leave campaign was tapping into to make people you know, tick one box in, in a you know, on the ballot paper and not the other. And that sense that you had from the EU side and all you know, around the world uh, in a lot of places that Brexit was part of a, a populist insurgency mm. wave crashing onto liberal democracies of which Trump was the single greatest expression. And that tide has, you know, hasn't completely receded in the US, but you know, Biden's the president uh, and Rishi Sunak is the prime minister here. How much resonance do you think that has 
actually with British voters and, and in the British electorate. I mean, Remainers obviously feel it very strongly. They think Boris Johnson yeah, and, and Donald Trump, similar sorts of propositions. You know, I could argue the other way just as easily. But is Brexit part of that or is that just a not a, no longer a helpful way of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about it slightly differently. Brexit, Trump and the like were manifestations of the fact that mainstream politics failed a significant chunk of their electorates. That's my starting point, is is actually, you know, these people didn't turn against the status quo and the system just for a laugh. And these people weren't the only people who voted. You know, there were plenty of prosperous, well-off people who weren't protesting against the system, but had their own reasons, who voted both for Trump and for Brexit. So I'm not saying this is the whole story, but I'm saying if you're talking about those people, those Labour voters, perhaps, who turned out to vote leave, this was because their sense was that for decades, mainstream politics had failed to do anything. And actually taking a punt, having a go, kicking down the old establishment might be worth it because let's face it, that establishment hasn't really done much for us for many, many years. So I think one of the one of the things that's missing from this debate is the kind of, I was kind of hoping at some point for us, I mean, I'm very, very naive, for some kind of mayor culpa from centrist politicians saying, yeah, actually, you know what? We didn't pay enough attention. It is absolutely ridiculous that it took the Brexit referendum for us to realise that our country is scarred by simply unacceptable levels of inequality and for that to become mainstream in political discourse. It's interesting you say that. I I feel I've encountered quite a lot of that. I think almost, yeah, I think there there are people who'd say the opposite, that actually there's been so much sort of liberal flagellation and self-abasement and all, you know, did we actually bring this on ourselves, that it's sort of you know, it is it, almost clouded the view of, uh, you know, certainly in the US with Trump, actually, it's just of a, a, a sort of kleptocratic heist um, that just, you know, became actually a borderline fascist insurgency, well, not even that borderline in some cases, uh, and Brexit uh, actually is, a, you know, a capture of the mainstream, you know, historic ruling party of the UK by ultra-nationalists, you know, very well financed by some people who didn't necessarily have Britain's interests at heart, ultimately. So I know exactly what you mean, that you know, but particularly on the point of inequality. But there are two different things there. I think you know, one of my problems with the whole it was Putin's victory and all this sort of thing was I, I there was just a sense of you know there were clearly issues with the Remain campaign and with you know with some of the lies they told about the three hundred fifty million or whatever. So I'm not saying this was a squeaky clean, clean campaign, but actually. Sorry, you mean the Leave campaign? You said the Remain campaign. The Leave campaign. The Leave campaign. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, but I mean, uh, my sense wasn't that post-referendum there was this sense of okay, let's consider what we did wrong to make so many people vote against the status quo. It was, it was Putin. They lied. They were, you know, the whole thing was a con. That was where people took refuge, as far as I can see. I mean, maybe. I mean, you follow these things more closely than me, so maybe you're right, and I'm just haven't been paying attention, but. My sense wasn't that there was that kind of self-flagellation uh, or that sort of deep look at what had gone wrong and been allowed to go wrong for so long. I think we can both be right here, actually, because I think there was, but it was all done within the sort of closed, hermetically sealed chambers of liberal self-flagellation and not in a way that would actually cut through to the people who you were trying to reach to say, look, we understand what it is that you were voting for. We we don't just think you're all thick racists who don't understand your own economic self-interest. We get that there was a legitimate grievance here. That, the the, the sort of, it was never done in a way that built a bridge uh, and the most salient bit of it was what I think it was Caroline Lucas quite brilliantly described as the sort of playpen for Remainer grandees that was um, the People's Vote campaign. It was absolutely, in many respects, couldn't have been better designed to reinforce the perception that you had a bunch of 
uh, yeah, arrogant people. No, absolutely. I mean, it was Remainer grandees and people who hadn't really found hobbies after being involved with the Blair administration. This brings me back to something that you said that I think is incredibly important earlier about salience, because actually, as soon as you sort of raise the question of can we be at least reasonable or realistic about whether the terms of Brexit were good or not, there will be lots of people who will say, oh, what you really mean is can we have open door immigration and uh, overrule the people's choice? Right. So you get trapped straight away in that. And so obviously, you know, certainly from Keir Starmer's point of view, I mean, he said some of the things that we've just described one way or another about, you know, we understand the underlying causes of Brexit, but we're not going to undo Brexit. That's That could be the right position for him. But if you if, if it's a tactically in Labour's interests and the opposition party's interest to ramp the salience of Brexit down, you'll never get to the point where you have an increased understanding of what the actual problem is. And now you said you know you've been teaching it for for however many years, uh, and you know you were surprised what the EU offered. I was writing about EU and EU enlargement and the uh, yeah, the Lisbon Treaty and. Theresa May and you know the opt back in from the opt out of the Justice and Home Affairs pillar and all this stuff that no one read and no one cared about. It was impossible to explain. And it took 15 paragraphs just to explain why it was even a story, which is why I only ever ran as 200 words on the bottom of page 52 um, <laughs> of a 51 page newspaper. Uh, and but then we're trapped, aren't we? So, you know, we're going to come on to some optimism in a minute, I promise. But uh, the, you know, the problem of salience becomes a problem of fatalism and resignation to something that might still just be a bad idea. Possibly, though, you know, imagine a Keir Starmer government comes in, there's an awful lot to do, an awful lot of stuff that needs addressing, an awful lot we can do to improve the functioning of our economy ourselves, okay? Engaging in anything that goes beyond some tweaks to the current deal with the European Union, so either renegotiating the trade and cooperation agreement or thinking seriously about going into the single market, will eat up a Labour first term. So, you know, we're in a position where, yes, it might be better for the economy if we were to have a closer relationship with the European Union. But would it necessarily be better for the economy than doing all the other stuff we could do rather than sitting in a room in Brussels for four years? That's not entirely clear to me. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the EU's attitude would, would be. I, my hunch from what I hear on their side is it would be wary, it would be cautious, and it would be well aware that if this turns out to be a one-term Labour government, then everything could get unpicked pretty damn quickly. So I'm not convinced at the moment you know, even with the best will in the world, if, if if one of Starmer's priorities were we are going to have a closer relationship with the European Union and one that really has a significant macroeconomic impact, whether actually after five years, all you'd have to show for it is a frustrating set of negotiations that hadn't yet ended. So is there a, a sort of, is there an optimistic scenario here, I suppose, for people who were Remainers and essentially still are Remainers, where... There, you, you leave sort of well alone on the culture war argument uh, and time sort of heals some of that. And it becomes such a sort of settled point of consensus that economically it, it wasn't great. Uh, and maybe the Conservatives get, become a sort of, the, or the Eurosceptic Conservatives become as culturally freakish as I remember them being in about 1998. And they can go mm. nuts, but go nuts in opposition. Uh, and people go back to treating IDS as a bit of a joke. Um, which you know, it was slightly surprised me that that mm -hmm. stopped. But anyway, um, the uh, 
uh, and and therefore you just you know you you have then have a sort of gradual evolution towards the sort of relationship that Britain needs with the EU. Is that can we can can we be optimistic in that respect? I suppose that's possible. I mean, there is. I mean, for for those on the progressive side, there is there is good news if you look at public opinion about immigration. For instance, there's been a trend towards uh, greater positivity about immigration since the referendum of 2016. I mean, we can argue about the degree to which having taken back control, is that the reason why? But we don't know. But generally, there's been this trend. For all the fact that I bemoan the fact that levelling up needed the referendum to become a core political priority of, of, of both Labour and the Conservatives, I think it is good that we're talking about it now. We have got the prospect, if we get a government that's willing to act on the rhetoric of addressing some of the really long-term issues that have bedeviled our society and our economy. So, you know, that's, that strikes me as a positive. Uh, and, you know, for those who support the Labour Party, surely it's good news that they're 20-odd points ahead in the polls now. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in this country. We need to restore faith in our politics. We need politicians to become honest and to start addressing Issues again, I think all those, you know, real issues and proper trade-offs and the need for long-term thinking on big problems like climate or social care or things like that, that's going to take more than one term of a Labour government. But I think given the state of the Conservative Party at the moment, it's probably more likely to happen under a Labour government than under a Tory government. And it looks like we're going to get a Labour government. Now, let's go back then just to finish to, for want of a better word, the kind of hardcore regretters, the rejoiners, uh, people who... Just feel that you know, their country was 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 ripped out from underneath them. They were lied to. They were defrauded, um, and they're quite upset that they're not. They don't feel very represented. They're not very represented actually in British politics at the moment, you know. And you know, the fact that there there is there was a whole set of cultural presumptions about how affluent or well educated or you know that they're all sitting there uh, in in graduate jobs listening to radio four panel shows and therefore their needs aren't as urgent as the needs of the left behind red wall voter that's a cliche right mm -hmm. and so therefore they have they have to suck it up because they're okay ultimately and first of all that seems a bit unfair they are voters they have a few mm -hmm. and they're not being very well represented at the moment uh, but second of all you know it would be quite disillusioning wouldn't it for them if they basically there was yeah you know, they were they were basically you know, close to 50 50 you know 48 percent yeah then more now and they're not being represented. Is that 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 is a bit of a democratic problem, isn't it? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, there is such a thing as losers' consent. Simply saying it was a steal if you lose is probably not the best. Rob Ford of the University of Manchester, who I think very very soon after the referendum tweeted, you know, for all those Remain supporters who are feeling gutted now, you know, this is what UKIP voters have felt for the last ten years. You know, for a very long time there were significant chunks of voters whose voices were never heard. You know, what was it? Almost four million UKIP voters in 2015, and they got one MP for their trouble. Uh, this is just inherent to our system. And the fact of the matter is that people don't mind if they're on the winning side. They're willing to tolerate the iniquities of the system. But as soon as they're on the losing side, then it becomes a little bit more problematic. So you know, this is tied up to something you hinted at before. Maybe it's time we start having that debate about the nature of our electoral system and the fact that it can leave so many people out there feeling voiceless. Though I wouldn't hold your breath on that because I don't think Labour are about to undertake that kind of... So as we have to disentangle regret as an emotion, which is about imaginary counterfactuals. So if only other things had happened, if only things would be different uh, from active political choices you might make now and there is this this sort of psychological phenomenon the sort of the certainty effect which is you know where people will take a bad outcome now at least with the 
the confidence that that's the way things are than a better outcome in theory where it creates more uncertainty and they don't necessarily know how things are going to pan out. I think I've got that right. I'm sure Phil will correct me uh, if I've badly misrepresented that concept. But the sense that when people are asked the polling question, which is where we started and where we should probably finish, you know, how would you vote if there were a referendum now? They might well be imagining if you could go back in the time machines 2016, what would you do? That's not the same as would you go through all of the hell of another campaign and, you know, ripping the plaster off that unhealed wound, rubbing some salt into it, you know, all of that. Would you fancy that? And the answer is uh, actually no, no, not much. No, I think absolutely. And of course, added to that and have another referendum so soon after the initial one. Is there a democratic issue there? So I think I think you're right. I, I think this will this will play out very differently if there were actually the prospect of a vote. And of course, the other thing is, what are we voting on? What is the deal on the table? What what are the EU offering us? Because it's, it sure as hell won't be what we left in 2016. No. And yeah, if it involves joining the euro or <laughs> various other things, it becomes incredibly complicated. Unfortunately, that leaves us that leads us brilliantly into an entirely new podcast, which we should have on Scotland, <laughs> which we barely touched on. But um, yeah. the, the, let's let's le- let's just leave that gauntlet thrown down because clearly you know, that is a huge we, I, we, I should add the caveat at this point that most of what we've talked about essentially relates to England but that is again um, a consequence in, in, in many respects of what happened since 2016 I think the, the nature of what we mean by the nation was changed by that referendum as much as anything else wasn't it? No no absolutely and I think the, the internal implications of 2016 they've got a long way to play out yet to be perfectly honest whether in Northern Ireland or indeed in Scotland uh, which means they could play out for the better as well as the worse and yeah. thereby we have fulfilled our, our, our mandate to end on an optimistic note but we do have to stop there uh, Anna Menon thank you thank you for having me I might go lie on the couch for a bit now Hello, this is Phil, the producer of the show here. Hope you enjoyed our first show back in 2023. If you did, please follow, like or share the podcast or maybe all three. I do need to quickly mention that Raf has his first book out later this year. It's called Politics, a survivor's guide with the tagline, how to stay engaged without getting enraged. It's got some pretty good reviews already from people like Roy Stewart, who at the end of the last year, on another podcast show he's involved in, I'm not sure what his name is, but you might know, he gave it as his pick of 2023 in the non-fiction category. That's a pretty good recommendation, I reckon. You can pre-order it now. Apparently all the rage nowadays in the book industry. Details in the show notes. I also wanted to very quickly thank you out yonder. In the darkest days of COVID, they did some nice graphics for us, which we've used ever since. And so I've promised to thank them. They are really nice. They do lots of illustrations, animations, and pretty much anything visual you're interested in. And they're based out in Berlin. They used to live in sunny Brighton, but the cost of living got too much here. So um, sadly, they moved to Berlin. I miss them a lot, actually. Think about them a lot. Anyway, that's enough reminiscing from me. Listen in, same day next week. Until then, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.